this is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our podcast, Parental Alienation from Couch to Courtroom and Beyond. We will discuss the resisting and refusing dynamic, commonly referred to as parental alienation, how you'll know it's happening in your case, and what can be done about it. Parental alienation can cause stress and trauma in high-conflict cases. These podcasts focus on how attorneys and mental health professionals can support families and children. This is Dr. Bob Evans, and welcome to our new podcast focusing on the phenomenon of parental alienation, moving from therapist's couch to the courtroom and beyond. One of the situations that we see frequently in parental alienation cases are allegations of abuse, allegations of poor parenting uh, levied against the targeted or rejected parent. Well, someone who did some research on the whole area of memory, because what happens is you'll find children telling guardian ad litems or even judges that they remembered when, you know, the targeted parent did X, Y, or Z either to them or that they witnessed something. Well, Elizabeth Loftus came around um, gee whiz, probably back in the 70s and then into the 80s, did a lot of research on the whole area of, of memory. And she tells a, about a case that she uh, was involved in, a um, case where the uh, person's name was Steve Titus. And Steve Titus one day was pulled over by the police, and it appeared that his car sort of resembled a, a car that was driven earlier in, in the evening, by a man who raped a female hitchhiker. Well, Titus sort of resembled the rapist, and police took a picture of him and put him in a photo lineup. They uh, showed the photo lineup to the victim, and the the victim pointed to the photo and said, uh, that one is the closest, according to Dr. Loftus. Well, Steve Titus was put on trial for rape, a rape victim got the rape victim got on the stand and said, "I'm absolutely positive that's the man." And Titus was convicted. And while he was incarcerated, he got the idea of getting the local newspaper to do an investigation in his case. And the journalist actually um, found the real rapist, and the man ultimately confessed to this rape and. Uh, it was actually thought that he committed a whole bunch of other ones in the area. And when this information was given to the judge, the judge set Steve Titus free. Well, um, normally that's where the case would have ended, but Titus was so angry and bitter over the fact that he lost his job, he couldn't get it back, he lost his fiance, uh, mostly because of his anger towards what happened to him. He lost his entire savings. So he decided to file a lawsuit against the police and and others he felt were responsible for what was going on or what happened to him. Well, Dr. Loftus at that point 
got involved in the case, and she was trying to figure out how did the victim go from pointing to the photo saying that one is the closest to him to I'm absolutely positive that's the guy. She wanted to know how did that how did that change happen in this person's recollection. Well, Titus was so consumed with his civil case and he's apparently spent every living every living moment of thinking about it and trying to get his justice for the uh, from the from the law enforcement and the legal system that unfortunately one day he actually he died just before he went to trial at the age of 35. So Loftus came along and she started looking into the studies of memory and memory for, she's been studying this for decades. So obviously it was even probably prior to the 70s. And she she studied memory in terms of uh, people remembering things that did not happen or um, another way to look at it, basically false memories. And she, she um, studied convictions of people, people who are incarcerated um, because of somebody's false memory. Obviously witnesses and law enforcement as well as uh, victims. Well, many people believe that memory works like a recording device, like a tape recorder. You just record the information, and then you call it up when you need it, and you play it back. And when you get the answer to questions or identifying images, this is how your memory system works. Well, it turns out that that's not true. Our memory system does not work like a recording device. It's constructive. Uh, Loftus kind of makes the... Uh, analogy to Wikipedia on the computer, right? Basically, you can go into Wikipedia and not only read what they have to say about some things, but you can also change them. You can add to it. Well, that's what happens to our memories. So Loftus conducted a number of experiments that involved showing people simulated crimes or simulated accidents and asked them what they remembered. And in one study involving a simulated accident, people were asked how fast cars were going when they hit each other, and other people were asked how fast cars were going when they smashed into each other. And when she looked at the data, the people that were asked how fast the cars were going when they smashed actually reported the cars were going faster than when the people were asked how fast the cars were going when they were hit. So the word smashed and hit had an impact on people's ability to estimate, guess about the speed of vehicles when they had their accident. So one question posed was, would the same kind of mistakes be made with a really stressful event? One of the criticisms of, of Dr. Loftus's work was the fact that she was looking at something like, you know, a car accident, and maybe you witnessed a car accident, and keep in mind this was simulated, so the people really weren't particularly stressed at the event. So she wanted to know what would happen if we added stress to the situation. And so she worked with the U.S. military, and they were involved in training their um, forces like what would happen to them if they were ever captured as a prisoner of war. And as part of that training, 
The soldiers were interrogated in a very aggressive, hostile, physically abusive fashion for 30 minutes. Afterwards, they had to identify the person who conducted the interrogation. And when they were fed suggestive information that insinuated the uh, person was actually different than the actual interrogator, many of them misidentified their interrogators and frequently identified somebody who didn't even remotely resemble the real interrogator. So the study showed that when people are fed misinformation about some experience that they may have had, their memory can be distorted or contaminated and thereby changed. So in the 1990s, there was an even more extreme example of memory problems. Some patients were going into therapy with uh, one presenting problem, such as depression or eating disorder, and they were coming out of therapy with a whole different kind of problem. Extreme memories of horrific brutalizations, uh, satanic rituals, um, bizarre and unusual elements were, were reported by, by patients as a consequence of going into therapy, into psychotherapy. And so one woman who came out of psychotherapy, according to Dr. Loftus, believed that she had endured years of ritualistic abuse where she was forced into a pregnancy and that the baby was cut from her belly. But there were no physical scars. There was no physical evidence that would support her story. So Dr. Loftus was wondering, where do these bizarre memories come from? And what she found is that most of the situations involve some particular elements of the psychotherapy or the counseling, if you will, which included things like imagination exercises, dream interpretations, hypnosis in some cases, exposure to false information. These elements appeared to be leading patients to develop these bizarre, unlikely, and obviously false memories. So Dr. Loftus designed some experiments to study the processes that were being used in, in some psychotherapy settings in order to study the development of false memories. So in one of these early studies, she used suggestion and planted a false memory that when the person, the subject in the studies, was a child, five or six years of age, they were lost in a shopping mall, and they were frightened and crying and, and was ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with the family. Well, this didn't sound all that stressful. Uh, however, she and other investigators have planted false memories of things that were much more unusual and much more stressful. It was a study in Tennessee they were they planted a false memory that the child, the uh, that uh, the child nearly drowned, and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. A study in Canada planted the false memory that as a child they were attacked by a vicious animal. Another study in Italy they planted a false memory of witnessing a demonic possession. Dr. Loftus reported about the backlash she received for these studies, but in fact she did get appropriate approval by ethics boards and that type of thing. So she was really doing work that they determined was going to be more beneficial than the, 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 the temporary stress that it, the subjects experienced. And in many cases, too, and she later tells us that 
she deprogrammed the people so that they realize what was going on. So she asked the question, do planting a fault memory, does planting a false memory have any repercussions? Does it affect people later in life? Do these thoughts affect later behaviors? So in studying this issue, Dr. Loftus planted a false memory that people got sick as a child eating certain foods, hard-boiled eggs, dill pickles, strawberry ice cream. And she found that once the false memory was planted, people didn't want to eat the foods. The false memories aren't necessarily bad or unpleasant. For example, a positive memory about healthy foods could help people want to eat healthy foods more, right? And so, you know, what her studies are showing is that you can plant false memories and they have repercussions that affect behavior long after the memories take hold. Most people cherish their memories. They know that they represent their identity, who they are, where they came from. But from Dr. Loftus's work, we know just because somebody tells you something and they say it with confidence and they say it with a lot of detail and they express emotions, that when they say it, it doesn't necessarily mean it really happened. And we cannot rely we can't re- cannot reliably distinguish true memories from false memories. We need independent corroboration. So you will frequently see therapists, psychologists writing in their reports that this person's story about what had happened is so credible because they, they, they included a lot of details and were very confident in how they expressed themselves. So therefore, it must be true. Well, from we know from Dr. Loftus's work that that's not necessarily the case. And so we need to be very careful when we hear stories about abuse that happened in the past. Not to, this is not to diminish the fact that abuse really happens and it is horrific and it, and it needs to be dealt with appropriately, but it also needs to be investigated very thoroughly and it's not based just solely on someone's report because they said it with a lot of detail and confidence and even emotion. That's why we need to do a comprehensive assessment of allegations of abuse and neglect and negative information directed towards a targeted and rejected parent. Again, I want to emphasize this is not to diminish actual abuse that has been documented because that needs to be dealt with appropriately. Well, this will conclude, conclude, <laughs> conclude, it'll conclude our second episode, brief as it may be, and look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information on this topic, please visit www.drbobevans.com or www.naopas.com. We offer classes for both legal and mental health professionals to help educate them on the signs and strategies of parental alienation and how to move forward for a healthier environment for the children of divorce. Please visit 
www.naopas.com and sign up for our courses and use coupon code PODCAST for a 50% discount. Mm-hmm.